0: This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions.
1: Yeah, yeah. called me up, told me to take a look, but stay as bulls to talk their own book. Get the money. Get the money. Get,
0: get the money. Well, Ben Griffiths, thanks very much for coming back on uh, back on Talk Your Book. Really appreciate you taking your time and uh, and sitting down for a
1: chat. Great to be back, Chris.
0: Now, I think last time I spoke to you was just during that March sort of meltdown period, and it was great to have uh, someone with your experience and, and calmness around to uh, to chat through that time. I guess, why don't you start by telling us how Eli Griffiths has been able to withstand the markets uh, and perform this year?
1: Yeah, well, I will say um, I have seen a few markets, um, ups and downs, highs and lows. Uh, this year's market... Um, Uh, has been simply extraordinary. It's been surreal in terms of what it's done. You're right, we had a great discussion back in March, Chris, and we talked about what what does one do in times of crisis? And I remember we we talked about um, um, no two crises are the same, but the playbooks are uh, are identical. And we talked extensively about you grilled me on Auckland International Airports and and how that measured up. And, of course, that stock has been a, a bit of a star emerging from the ashes uh, of, of that market meltdown mm. in March. Look, we've gone okay. We've had a good year. Um, I'll, I'll admit we went into the sell-off in February into March um, with uh, a, a larger than normal allocation to cash out of, out of, out of, um, out of basically um, precaution for what lay ahead with COVID. Um, and we had to quickly rotate and get ourselves back invested. Um, the small caps, if you do a measurement from that, that March 23 low point through to the end of September, Small caps have actually rallied about 50% from that low point. Um, I'm happy to say the yearly Griffiths group, our small cap fund having been momentarily bumped off um, momentum in that early stages, cause we had too much cash was able to get invested quickly and finish the September period broadly in line with that market advance up about 50% from the lows. I was thrilled that we were able to do that. And that, and, and full, full um, praise goes to our team being able to react and get, and get invested. Um, I'm even more excited about an emerging companies fund that also got swept in the downdraft lower and finished September up about 62% from that low. So it outpaced um, both the small cap fund and, and of course, the benchmark. So it's been a year, Chris, very much of um, recovery from a, a, a distressed sell-off. It's It's been a year of staying fully invested, staying focused um, and having respect, as you always need to have, for the power of liquidity, whether it's central bank generated liquidity, or whether it's, as it turns out, it's government-sponsored safety nets, which has, of course, put a nice floor under most Western economies, including our own. So it's been a year of learning, it's been, a, it's been a surreal year, but it's and it's been a and it's been a very strong year for equities, and you've needed to be fully invested. And how are you feeling about the next six to 12 months? I feel pretty good. Um, I'm on the record as saying I, I wasn't fussed whether the Republicans got up or the Democrats. Um, my view, view was there was so much liquidity in the mm-hmm. system. The system is charged. We've had a, an earnings funk this year through this um, COVID-inspired disruption to global economies. Um, my belief is that um, the liquidity and the cash that's in, 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 in private cheque accounts and savings accounts, corporate bank accounts, um, all that's missing right now is a genuine revival in consumer confidence, which will happen when the governments of the world um, are able to basically check the spread and spread of of COVID-19. Once that happens, I believe animal spirits, consumer confidence and business confidence will reassert itself. I think that's rather close to hand. I think it's sooner than you think. And I think that will spark a consumer revival, which will then spark a business investment revival uh, fueled by the copious amounts of liquidity. So I feel pretty good about the outlook for economies internationally um, and stock markets as an outworking. So I think 21 is going to be a good year for equities. And what stock do you want to dive into today? Look, I thought we'd have a, a bit of a chat about um, a stock that not a lot of the, the listeners will necessarily think that uh, will associate me with, and and that's Linus. Um, and, and Linus is a, um, well, it's a it's a, it's a it's a rare earth miner and producer that's had certainly a controversial history. Things haven't been so great for Linus, but it's had a volatile history too. So, Chris, I thought we might take some time to have a chat about Linus. Sounds good. So we'll, we'll dig into Linus specifically in a second. Why don't you start with
0: maybe the helicopter view of the rare earth industry and, and what that looks like from your perspective?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Well, rare earths have that sort of misnomer tag, rare earths are, Actual rare earths themselves are reasonably abundant and, and and plentiful, but where they're rare, of course, is the way in which they occur. They they don't tend to occur in in, in commercial deposits or mineable deposits, and hence they they have the moniker of um, of rare earths. Um, and I guess what what are they used for? There are yeah. uh, there's I think there's 13 different elements within that within the stable, um, and they're used for a variety of applications, essentially in in um, electronics, uh, more or less. Um, you'll see them featuring in robotics and drone technology. But most critically, of course, they're used in the in the manufacture of permanent magnets. And these are in, in motors and generators, and they will be a pivotal input, and I mean pivotal to the, the um, production of electric vehicles, electric vehicle drivetrains, and also in renewable energy applications as far as wind power goes, for instance. If you look at a typical hybrid car, you'll look at that, and you can walk around and you can look at the components uh, that will, have, in some shape or form, be be made up of of a rare earth. It probably will be what they call um, NDPR, neodymium, praseodymium. NDPR is a bit easier for us to to talk to.
0: Yeah, I'm not and, courageous uh, enough to have a crack at the uh, the actual terminology. Then I was definitely going to stick with
1: NDPR. <laughs> It took me a while to get on top of it, but, uh, but I thought I'd, I'd, I'd at least mention it once in our, in our chat. Um, everything from um, headlight glass to windscreen glass to motor motor applications within the actual drive drive train of the of the uh, of the motor vehicle, um, various electronics throughout the car. So they have a have an important use in in EVs and uh, and in the cars, as I said today, that we drive around. So so they're in they're in pretty solid demand. And I guess the crux is that 90% of the world's supply of these um, of these important elements, of course, come from China. And so I think Linus can lay the claim to being the world's largest non-Chinese creditable supplier, in fact, miner, separator, producer, distributor, and marketer of rare earth materials. Um, an extraordinary claim. Um, and... Not Linus sits strategically in a, in a in a great position.
0: And you mentioned Linus had an interesting history. Maybe before we, we get into what's happening today, maybe walk us through what that history looks like and, and how you view that in how it could affect the future.
1: Yeah, well, um, as as you know, um, I'm a bit of an old warhorse. Uh, I've seen so many of um, of our listed companies either not make it. Um, but in some cases, I've seen exceptional stories where um, Australian listed companies with so-so prospects, nothing special, actually happen upon something that's quite meaningful, either by accident or design, um, exploit it, develop it and become major success stories. And the liner story goes right back to the 80s when they were a fledgling gold miner without a huge amount of prospectivity. And Les Emery was the CEO who I'd met on several occasions at the time. He was determined to build a gold mining operation, but meanwhile, had been shown this this deposit on the Mount World Cattle Station, which is, of course, where, um, where the deposit sits. Um, it, was, it was actually owned by Ashton Mining and Anaconda, and they were more than happy to progressively sell that interest to Linus. And so Linus decided that rare earths were probably something they should be involved in, no matter that the ultimate market for rare earths was not going to become anything until the sort of the 2020s. Mm. Uh, so we're back in the 80s here, back in the so in, in incredible luck or foresight call it what you like um, and so over time we saw linus shed its um, shed its gold mining operations and focus purely on developing mount world as a as a foremost supplier of um, of, of rare earths you know when I was looking at a chart Chris and you, it's it's extraordinary you, you have a look at what the linus share price has done and clearly that's that's an outworking of what rare earths have done the price, the price wise and we had an extraordinary boom in rare earths Pricing um, in mid-2010, mid 2011, where rare earths NDPR, we'll talk to, was about $25 a kilo. The Chinese announced that they were abolishing export quotas and NDPR went to over $250 a kilo mm. um, within, within a six-month period, which then brought about a, a surge of interest in, 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 in Linus before things came crashing back down to earth when export quotas from China were were granted and then we get into the murky history, which I'm sure you're going to tease me out on, the murky history on Malaysia and what they did there. But the point the point I'm going to make here is that, Chris, most major successful frontier companies or frontier industries had their beginnings in a speculative blow-off and then a cataclysmic collapse. And if I look back as far as the, the October 1929 crash, and from the embers and relics of that miserable period, the stock market in stock market history, we had standard oil, we had, we had US steel, and we had home state mining born from, from the ruins. And each of these corporations went on to become extraordinarily large and successful. The same thing happened in the dot-com era, where we had a flurry of speculative interest that blew the market sky high in late 1999, early 2000. And, of course, then it, then it came back down to earth down to earth with a giant meltdown. Um, But from those ashes and from the ruins emerged Amazon and Apple and Microsoft. These businesses today are the leaders, clear industrial leaders of the the modern world. I'm going to make the case today that with Linus, we've seen the speculative blow off when, when Linus share price got to almost $27, Chris, and then by 2018 was 32 cents and unloved. You mentioned West Farmers, and we'll touch on West Farmers also spotting a great opportunity um, uh, last year, but we'll get to that later. So that's the opportunity. It's 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 a business that has that was born of a of a major speculative explosion, and then a, then a tragic um, implosion, and and the seeds were sown. We think for Linus's future.
0: And so, why don't you talk us through Malaysia? Because that'll be a, a bit of a stumbling block for some investors. It's been a bit of a a shit sandwich in, to, to use a technical term talk us yep. through what's happened in malaysia and where they're currently at with that part of their business
1: yeah well malaysia of course it has been difficult for the company and and i should say um uh, line of shareholders should be should be grateful that we have a professional like amanda lacars at the helm who's pretty well been there as ceo since 2014 so she has had to Go through all the planning and approvals of processes to have a plant built in Malaysia to, to, um, uh, to, to crack and leach the, um, the rare earth's ore. Um, to go through all that planning, to then go through funding, build the plant, and then to suffer what has been, I guess you can only um, conclude some very heavy politicking um, and activism, where heavy allegations are made about radioactivity, radioactive byproduct coming out of the plant and how it was not in Malaysia's interest to have that plant. So there were political recriminations. The New York Times did a decent hatchet job on the supposedly shoddy construction standards of the plant. And it was it it was quite a beat up at the time. The crescendo with the Malaysian situation was, I mean, no matter that they invested a substantial amount of money in the Malaysian economy and provided a large number of jobs, and it was probably the first major mining project or processing project to actually have occurred. It was a win for the government. Um, They ran foul of, of, uh, I guess, minority groups and activist groups who essentially championed and brutalized the business into essentially having to close their production plant um, ahead of a major review into the worthiness and safety of having that plant in Malaysia. Um, And of course that, Brought about that that um, activity, brought about the the demise of wine as a share price, and seemingly a demise, um, a demise to their business model, which was built heavily around mining the ore in WA and then exporting it to um, to Malaysia. It was a, it was a truly unfortunate set of circumstances they found themselves under. And
0: so they've raised a significant chunk of capital recently, and money that's going to go towards. Um Capex in Malaysia, but also the Kalgoorlie processing facilities. Just explain yeah. how those two facilities will interact with each other. Yeah, that's,
1: that's a very fair question because it would appear that they've spent all this money in Malaysia and, and now they've got to go and do the same thing somewhere else. I think you should look at it and viewers should look at it as the, the Kalgoorlie plant, which by the way is fully permitted and approved and, and essentially funded now, um, will complement what's going on in Malaysia. And essentially, to appease the Malaysians um, and to allow for their permit, and they're operating on like a three-year permit. So all that money invested, Chris, you'd think you'd have certainty of production, but unfortunately, it's now a a series of um, permit renewals to keep the story going. We're going to see them um, essentially build a plant in Kalgoorlie, which will crack and leach the product and turn it into a carbonate, which will then be exported to Malaysia without any uh, radioactive elements that, that, um, that Malaysia has been most fearful of, um, and then further refine the product in Malaysia. So Malaysia will actually complement what we're doing here in Australia. And furthermore, the Kalgoorlie operation will enable production for Linus to expand from its current 20,000 tonnes or so, annual production, close to 30,000 tonnes. So you'll see an expansion in production you'll see a stable, safe, predictable production base in Australia where they can conduct the the critical um, cracking and and, and leaching uh, operations. Um, And then the product will go to Malaysia. So a good chunk of the coin that was raised in August is going, as you suggest, to building out this plant um, outside of Kalgoorlie. They'll be spending about 100 million US round numbers in tweaking and upgrading the Malaysian facility. And they've also earmarked a chunk of coin in that raising for the strategic partnership that um, they're working up with Blue Line in the United States, which I guess not a huge amount of information is known about the status of that JV, only that it will be um, a heavy rare earths separation facility, which will have industrial and military applications uh, for the US Department of Defense. So that is a, a growth avenue for the product and for Linus and its partner. That really, we don't know how big or how, where that goes, especially given the fact that it'll be high-grade military and industrial applications. So that's where the money's gone, Chris. They raised it in August. Um, we participated, we're a good-sized shareholder as you um, hopefully have gathered by now. Um, so they've raised the money um, through, um, through, through, that, um, through that transaction and that positions them quite nicely with their with their with their credit facilities to get to to get on with it and to, and to build now they're up against a bit of a clock here because the malaysian permit that they've currently got will expire in the first quarter of 2023 they'll need the Kalgoorlie operation to be up and running and fully commissioned by end of 22 to make sure that there's no uh, there's no um, mishaps there um, and that's probably the, where there's a little bit of risk, I guess. The plant will be slightly different to the one in Malaysia, and they've got to build this plant on time and on budget uh, down here. Um, so there'll be the usual issues with, with building and commissioning a new plant. So not without risk this. It does seem to f- fit quite nicely. The permit expires there. The the um, the um, construction timeline suggests they're going to be finished by 22. So not without risks there. Um, But um, I'm happy to back them, having already built a plant, I'm happy to back Amanda and her technical team.
0: In an era where jobs have become so important, it it does seem strange that so many Australian mining companies traditionally dug stuff out of the ground and sent it overseas for processing. Could you see an emerging trend where the Australian government look to support mining companies even more so so that processing's done onshore, creating jobs and and creating more value for a, a mine
1: product? Almost inevitably, Chris, I would suggest that that value adding sequence um, will be um, foremost in, in in the minds of um, company CEOs. Certainly, Andrew Andrew Liveris and his group that are trying to work out how Australia can better manufacture and and be smarter about keeping manufacturing here or value adding in this country. There's no doubt um, that um, that that will be uh, an active consideration for companies. Um, Clearly, there are obstacles to that and uh, there's invariably a, 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 um, a, a big price to, to, to play as the the, the, price, the cost of setting up manufacturing facilities or mining, refining and smelting facilities is not cheap. Is power prices here the other big one that's a bit of a
0: handicap when compared yes, to, to overseas?
1: Correct. So power prices now, perhaps we're addressing that um, with, um, I guess, with with. Um, domestic gas prices perhaps peaking and talking about importing, importing of um, LNG um, and perhaps some of our crucial export markets for LNG uh, perhaps won't be as robust as they were. So we'll see, a, I think, a greater, a greater amount of Dom gas available for, for local industry. So, so perhaps power and energy, electricity may not be as critical a factor, but certainly it's, it, it's no doubt it's, uh, it's front of mind. So we may well see more examples of, um, of production, like Linus is doing, um, homegrown production. There's also, of course, there is um, mining processing often tends to have an environmental side too, mm. um, which may not um, uh, resonate too well with, 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 um, with the masses. But I think the technology uh, being as it is, um, processing of almost any product um, is becoming safer. Cheaper and cleaner with um, with technology, so I think to answer your question, I think no doubt we'll see more onshoring of um, of of processing and uh, and refining. And so, in terms of Linus, just give me some of the headline numbers
0: in terms of say market cap and what your free cash flow forecasts are for the next say twelve to
1: twenty four months. Okay, so Linus's capped today in today's money at around three billion dollars. So it's got a it's got a, a reasonable market cap, reasonable valuation around it. If you look at what we think they're going to achieve when they fully commission, um, fully commission uh, Kalgoorlie, um, with the expanded production base. We think you could argue that you could see some um, sort of EBITDA numbers uh, for Linus somewhere in the order of sort of 450 to 500 million. Um, there, um, that's a that's a pretty decent um, decent number. Is if that
0: sorry Ben to interrupt? Is that assuming the commodity price stays where it is now? Or is that assuming some commodity price growth?
1: I'm I'm I'd be assuming in that number I'm assuming a little bit of growth there at the moment. Rare uh, NDPR prices are circa thirty-five dollars um, a kilo. I think the the assumption around the number I talked to is is sort of closer to a sort of fifty-dollar price. Yep. Um, and I did see some work which was fascinating, Chris. Just as a as, as a slight segue to your question, some fascinating work on the demand supply interplay and how that's going to change with the rise and rise of renewable energy applications and, and EVs. Um, and it's around 2023, there's an inflection point where demand accelerates um, quite rapidly. Now, you might say almost quite conveniently uh, for Linus that happened to have a supply coming on at that time. But it's interesting how the, the market goes into deficit at that point, as EV and renewable energy goes from being 10% of demand to closer to thirty-five to forty percent of demand, mm. so you'll start to see a, 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 a bit of a pinch come on there um, again because Linus will be the predominant non-Chinese supplier. So we expect and assume in that five hundred four to four fifty to five hundred million dollar EBITDA number that um, you'll see prices a, a more sensible long-term prices around fifty dollars. So you'll see very very handsome uh, EBITDA numbers coming out of the business at that point in time which means, which, which by definition suggests that cash flow will be very, very strong for the business at that point.
0: And so that's sort of a multiple of EBITDA looks looks attractive in and of itself. When you're viewing a business like Linus, are you viewing it on a, you know an EBITDA multiple or are you thinking about it in terms of its strategic importance considering its materials are used for, for weapons? And in a way, if you control rare earths, you control uh, manufacturing of lots of products and in effect jobs for, for people living in your country.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Look, we, we, we certainly have an eye to it in terms of its its uh, EBITDA multiple valuation. You, you see some of the leading lithium producers um, out there, Albemarle and 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 the like, on sort of fourteen times EBITDA. It's not too cheeky to 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 put Linus on say ten times uh, EBITDA for, for its uh, for its product, and as to your point, its strategic nature. So that gets you a valuation around five bill um, for, for for the business uh, versus again the current market cap around three. The other thing that we look at um, is, and it's an important part of our process, is what are the qualitative features of the business that set it aside? Uh, what are its redeeming qualitative inputs and features? Um, and, and there's a great research note that Canaccord put out, and it was entitled, it was, it was an initiation piece on Linus, and it said strategic player in a critical market. And that to me really, in, in, in a couple of words, sums up the, you know, the investment thesis for, mm. for, for Linus. It is a strategic player within a critical market. The US government in, uh, in 2018 put rare earths on its critical metals inventory. Um, so clearly the Americans are going to have a, a great interest in knowing where the, where the non-Chinese supply of this product is going to come from, which of course is Linus. So the strategic value, I think you, you can't move too far away from it. Um, and that has, in our process, when we look to score a stock, we look at the qualitative features, we start looking at, um, well, we start, of course, with board and management. And we look at um, the stability and the maturity of the, of the Linus board. And you can't go too far away from, from Amanda LaCars, who's an outstanding CEO, and we, we score her and rate her very highly um, in terms of her, her execution and her competency and her vision. But it's the industry fundamentals. It's the growth rate of this industry. It's the structure of the rare earths, Um, market that in our scoring process gives Linus an extraordinary qualitative score Um, um, and that that alone um, can almost underwrite an investment um, in in, in Linus. Um, You you have a process that looks at valuation and a process that considers qualitative features Um, and in many cases both both sides of the coin add up and you get an extraordinary stock weighting. Um, In this case Linus is probably a slightly more skewed to its qualitative assessment and scores very, very strongly in its qualitative view. So, Chris, very long-winded answer. I appreciate it. But there's valuation support, if you're happy to start the, start the gauge from about 2022, 23. Um, and there's overwhelming qualitative and, and strategic benefits and, I, know, I think, attributes that, um, that make Linus very interesting.
0: And we know that West Farmers has already tried to take them over once. Do you think there's a chance they'll be back? And if not, who else could be a, a potential owner of, of Linus?
1: That's a, that's a fair question. Um, I guess West Farmers they swept on Linus when it was on its um, when it's on its knees. It was at a very vulnerable point in its history. I mentioned the closure of the um, plant in, Mal- in Malaysia. The share price reaction down to thirty-two cents. Um, West farmers are patient long-term informed investors they don't do anything in a hurry and they tend to lay their bets for the long term um, we saw that as, as an extraordinary endorsement as to the as to the, the long-term strategic nature of linus rare earths rare earths role in the in the um, in, in, in metalliferous demand globally so I think West farmers were probably in the end too clever by half. They attempted to step in when there was some instability around the tenure of, of, of Linus's plant um, and their, their ability and the confidence that the Malaysian people had in their ability to operate the plant going forward. So I think it was a great endorsement that, um, that West Farmers stepped up. Um, they bid $2.25 today. The stock price is about $3.30. Um, so the stock has well and truly gotten away from them. I have no doubt that, um that west farmers has, have got the folder somewhere there with all the uh, the work and the um and, 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 the, and the investment thesis I just suspect the share price has gotten away from them and they perhaps would have done something before now um, in terms of others looking at Linus I, I I would suspect that Linus would be something that's obvious to people but I think the very strategic nature uh, of of this um, of this company and its uh, and its assets, mean that there's probably going to be more than the usual amount of interest from regulators, FIRB, Mm. um, the Americans, and, of course, the Japanese. And we haven't even talked about the Japanese, who are perhaps the biggest consumers outside the Chinese of rare earths, and they are um, incredibly loyal and supportive of Linus and, in fact, are providing funding. So I would be surprised if there's not a a, a, a sort of a a political or a regulatory um, overlay that makes it, perhaps difficult, but not impossible for, um, for, for for someone to take control of Linus. Um, that's just me hypothesizing, I, I I don't know. I know that um, there was some Chinese interest in Linus going back in 2010, and the FIRB were, um, were very quick to um, shut that down. So I think the, the strategic value of the business is well known um, and the ability of Linus to end up in the wrong hands or other hands um, is perhaps going to be a little difficult but uh, that may not stop people trying and it may not stop speculators from speculating on that.
0: Brilliant. That's been, uh, it's been terrific, Ben. Outstanding as always. Really appreciate it. And uh, you make a, a, a very compelling case for Linus. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. Nice to Thanks. see you. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talkie Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd
1: Invest.